0: Thank you to our praise team. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you today. Thanks for being here on a wet Sunday morning. We may hear a few rumbles as things pass overhead a little bit later. I wanted to give you two quick announcements before I forget about these things, and then we'll get into um, our text for today. Uh, One is that Sun Safari, we're collecting uh, yarn for them to take to South Africa for a mission trip upcoming this summer. Um, and so there's a collection bin in the back, uh, in the lobby this week, next week, next couple of weeks, um, and you can gather, we're going to gather those up and pass those off to them to be shipped over. And then also, um, after church today, we had planned a work day if, if uh, Ben, who's watching his radar back there, tells me at the end of the service that, hey, look, we got clear skies for 15 minutes. The workday may be on, so just hang loose. We'll let you know at the end of the service whether or not we're going to go forward with that. It will be as simple as we do have some inside projects. So if you're able to stick around or if you need to run back home and gather things, that's fine. Come back. We're going to be uh, doing some stuff on the inside of the building just for a little bit. Grab a quick bite of lunch, and then maybe we could tackle that pine straw that's back here behind the building, that big pile of it. Uh, So we'll just see. We'll let you know at the end. Our text for today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We've been in a series looking at this chapter. It's a chapter where Paul uh, makes the declaration of the resurrection of the dead. He defends the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. He starts this chapter by talking about how Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. The Corinthians agree with him on this, but they've got some hesitations about the thought of themselves being resurrected. The reason for that being that they follow what's called Platonic dualism. Plato, who was a philosopher lived around the 300s uh, BC. Um, had taught that the the material realm is where all the evil is in, is housed, and that the spiritual realm is where all the good is housed. And so they come to Christianity with this kind of. Thinking in the back of their mind that what is spiritual is good, what is material is bad. And so they did, they're not too keen on the idea of being resurrected from the dead, brought back into a material form, because again, they think, well, that's just going to reintroduce suffering, that's going to reintroduce misery. Why would I want to do that. And so Paul's making his case as we travel through uh, chapter 15 for the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. He's going to make two more uh, points today as to why he thinks the Corinthians should agree that there is going to be this bodily resurrection of the dead. Um, Our text comes from 1 Corinthians 15. We'll be reading verses 29 through 30 and verse 32. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 beginning at verse 29. Here we go. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? Verse 32. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You may be seated. Um, so let's kind of dive into this uh, together. Um, again, these verses offer another thing for the Corinthians to think about, another proof, if you would, or rationale as to why they should believe in the resurrection of the dead. Uh, let's take a look at verse 29. This is this is. We'll spend some time here because this is one of these um, very unique passages of Scripture uh, that. People take in all sorts of different directions. So we'll spend a little time here. The latter two arguments that Paul makes, we'll just breeze right through those. Look at verse 29 with me. He says, basically, if there's no resurrection of the dead, which the Corinthians or some of them are a little hesitant about, what do people mean by being baptized on their behalf? In other words, why would you do that if the dead are not raised? If there is no resurrection of the dead, why be baptized on their behalf? Like, if there's no life after the grave, then why would you, Corinthian Christians, be observing the practice of baptizing the living on behalf of the dead? Now, this clearly raises an issue. Uh, and the issue is, or the question is, is it biblical to baptize living people on behalf of the deceased? In other words, vicarious baptism. So somebody has died, and so I'm going to, and they're, they're where they're going to be, and then I'm going to baptize somebody here in this. In the, in the world of the living, in the land of the living, on their behalf, hoping that God will credit that baptism to the person who is in, 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 the, in wherever they happen to be. Um, so basically that person who died not knowing Jesus perhaps or died denying Jesus perhaps can somehow mystically, supernaturally be saved even after they have breathed their last breath here in this world. So that, that's what this text, the issue that it is creating— for theologians down through the ages. Um, And it it is important to note that this actually is in the Bible, right? This is not just some idea that a theologian introduced uh, that other theologians are wrestling with, but this is something that is right here. It's in the biblical text. It's part of the inspired Word of God. How do we treat this? How do we understand that? So I want to spend a little bit of time dealing with that here. Um, Can a living, breathing person a person on this side of eternity, be baptized on behalf of a deceased person, and that baptism credit to the deceased person uh, for the justification of the dead. That's, again, the issue that's here in front of us. First of all, let's treat the issue theologically. We would ask, what is required for salvation? Does a person who is uh, about, uh, or how does a person go about getting saved in the first place? Well, the Bible teaches without apology that Jesus is the one and only way to get to heaven. Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 6, uh, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The Father is in heaven. Jesus is saying no one gets to heaven but through himself. Now add to that Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 where Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? You'll be saved. And so that's the confession of faith. In Romans chapter 10, Paul is talking about Jewish people. How do Jewish people? Because that's the question the Romans are asking. How do all these Jewish people, how are they going to get to heaven? And Paul says, well, the same way the rest of you all are going to get to heaven. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, those Jewish people, just like the rest of us, will be saved. Now, to add to that the confession, um, or add in what Jesus taught about uh, heaven and hell and the inhabitants of those two places, Jesus taught that the dead are unable to cross over from heaven to hell or from hell to heaven. He said, Luke chapter 16 and verse 26, Jesus is telling a story here of a fellow who is, uh, happens to be in hell, and he's talking across this great chasm to a fellow by the name of Abraham, Father Abraham. And Father Abraham has with him, next to him, this guy who is in hell. Uh, he has, Father Abraham has next to him a fellow that the fellow in hell knew from the earth, while he was here on the earth. So the fellow in hell cries out in Jesus' story. He says, and besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm, has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here in hell to you in heaven may not be able to do so because of that great chasm, and none may cross from there to us. Jesus is teaching here that once you get to where you're going for eternity, that that is where you stay. That that That's that's Luke chapter 16 in a nutshell, that once you get to where you're going for eternity, that that is where you stay. Jesus said there's a great Chasm fixed between the two places, heaven and hell, um, and that there's no possibility of crossing over from one to the other. So, the idea that a person could be baptized on behalf of a non believing dead person and somehow transfer their residence, transfer the residence of that individual who is in hell to heaven, uh, that is unsupported by Jesus. It is unsupported by the teachings of the Apostle Paul. It is unsupported from the witness of Scripture. And so we would eliminate that possibility altogether that a person could possibly go from hell, transfer the residence from hell to heaven because somebody in the living was in the land of the living was to be baptized on their behalf. So let me say categorically that baptism on behalf of the dead for the purpose of getting them saved is a waste of time. It will not work, it is meaningless, and furthermore, it is against orthodox Christian teaching. Back in the second century, there are a group of people who tried to push the envelope on this issue as well as other issues. Uh, there's a fellow by the name of Marcion. I've got a little uh, painting here. I don't know the origins of this painting. I tried to look it up, and I couldn't find it. Um, it's a painting from antiquity. Um, and you can see one of the characters in that pa- painting is a fellow by the name of Marcion. Marcion was a heretic of the church, branded a heretic of the church. And the, the message of the painting is clear by looking at Marcion's face, which is all blurred out. So they're trying to basically say, this guy, we want to erase him from history. We're not interested in what he has to say. That's what the painting is depicting there. Uh, Marcion was branded a heretic by the church. He was formally expelled from the church in 144 A.D. for his errant teachings. Part of what got Marcion in trouble was his denial that the God of the New Testament was the same God of the Old Testament, So he looked into the New Testament and heard Jesus as God and talking to his Father who is God. And he said, you know what? That's not the same person in the New Testament that we see in the Old Testament. So the person, the God in the Old Testament is a totally different person. And so this is one of the teachings that Marcion uh, uh, presented, and his followers uh, took hold of that. Um, He also taught, he wanted to replace, um, I'm sorry, he, he also taught that much of the New Testament needed to be. Erased or needed to be removed. And so he took a scalpel to the writings of the Apostle Paul. He took a scalpel to the Gospel of Luke. He completely eliminated the other Gospels from the Bible. He wanted to um, replace those writings from the Bible with his own writings, interestingly enough. Um, And so, again, all of these things together got Marcion in a lot of hot water with some of the other early church fathers, people like Justin Martyr, people like um, Irenaeus of Lyons, and people like Hippolytus. Marcion and his followers, among other things, were practicing, guess what? Baptism of the dead. They were going and grabbing large genealogies from their own family histories, as well as from people around the community, and they were baptizing people in the land of the living on behalf of or in the name of those people who had already deceased. With the thinking that if we do this in the land of the living, it will have some impact. It will change the status of the person who has uh, gone on without believing in Christ. And so for this reason and others, uh, Marcion and his followers were branded heretics. It's interesting that down through the ages, whenever a cult offshoot of Christianity pops up, they tend to emphasize these obscure passages of Scripture. For example, the Mormons under Joseph Smith began baptizing the living on behalf of the dead. Mormons have become fanatical about baptizing people in the living on behalf of people uh, who have died. They literally grab phone books and just go through the phone book and under the water back up. And next person's name, under the water back up. And they're doing this. I mean, it goes on and on and on perpetually. The Mormons are fanatical about baptism of the dead, um, trying to get as many people baptized as they can by proxy baptism. Again, believing that that will somehow change the status of the person in the land of the dead uh, to get them to heaven. Again, all of this being done on the basis of an obscure passage of Scripture that has no conclusive biblical support anywhere else in the Bible. Like this issue that Paul raises here in verse 29 is not mentioned, the baptism for the dead is not mentioned anywhere else in all of the Bible. The conclusion of the matter is Paul is not advocating for the baptism of the dead as a means of salvation. Now, that leaves us with a question. Well, then, why, did, why is that in there? Why did you say that, Paul? What is the point? What, what, why, why would you mention the baptism of the dead if you didn't agree with it, if you thought it was an errant teaching? What did you mean when you mentioned the baptism of the dead? Well, Dr. Gordon Fee, a noted Bible scholar, and also he has a great first name, has identified 40 unique attempts at an explanation of what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 29. I'm going to give you just a, a couple of these. These are four. Again, there's 40 plus. Other scholars have said over 100, but I think Uh, Dr. Fee's more narrowing on the target. Here's four of the more prominent theories that are out there. This first explanation as to what this verse is talking about is that this reference to baptism is actually just a reference to washing a corpse. The word baptism or baptizo in the Greek literally translates into English wash, to wash. When the English translators brought the word baptism over into English, they wanted to put some special emphasis on this act. And so rather than just translate it, wash, or washing, they trans—they transliterated it. So that is they took the way the word sounded in Greek, and they used the same pronunciation in English, and thereby created a new word. Uh, there are other words like this that appear in scripture, for example, the word tabernacle, uh, and there are others. But in any, tabernacle means dwelling, or dwelling place. But and with the word baptism, it literally means to wash. And so perhaps that's what Paul is referring to, the washing of the dead, that they were just washing the corpses and preparing them for burial. That's a possible explanation. Number two, a second explanation is that perhaps getting baptized in the name of a deceased person was a way to honor that person who had died. It was kind of like a memorial service. Perhaps that person who died was a martyr of the church. And they wanted to just have a moment of special recognition for that person's life and for the sacrifice that they made. And so they baptized somebody in the land of the living in honor of a person who had already gone on to be with the Lord. Now, a third explanation here, and it's kind of tied into the uh, second one, very similar here, is that perhaps the person who died had confessed Jesus as Lord, but they had never been baptized. So they had never gone uh, to the waters of baptism before their death. And so the Corinthian church wanted to hold a service of baptism on the deceased's behalf, again, just as a a memorial. They knew this had no salvific merit to it the act of baptizing somebody in the living on behalf of somebody who was dead, if they had thought that there was some salvific impact, you can be sure that the Apostle Paul would have pointed out the error in their thinking when he mentioned this. he had been like, y'all are way out of line here. But Paul didn't do that because whatever it was that they were doing, it wasn't out of line with Scripture. And so Paul didn't correct their actions. Uh, that's, again, one possible explanation, that they were ba- baptizing somebody in the land of the living on behalf of a deceased person who um, had gone on to be with the Lord, but had never come to the waters of baptism during their lifetime. A fourth theory, and that is uh, that this was an ordination ceremony. So they're taking someone who, uh, back then elders were appointed for life. So if you're an elder here at Hebrew, know that um, that's a possibility. So they were appointed for life, and so when that person died... Uh, that elder died, then the replacement person would come in and as an act of ordination of the new elder, they would baptize them in the name of the deceased elder. So again, this was just an ordination um, ritual, if you would. So those are a couple attempts at explaining perhaps why these Corinthians were doing this. Paul didn't seem to have a problem with it, or at least not that he says. One thing that we can be sure of is that baptism of the dead as a means of salvation is unscriptural. It is against the teachings of Jesus. It is against the teachings of the Apostle Paul. It has no merit. It will not change the status of a deceased person's eternal residence one iota. Do I wish that it did, that what the Mormons were doing had some impact, that we could do the same thing? Sure. I mean, that'd be great if we could pull people out of hell by baptizing somebody in the land of the living on their behalf. That would be wonderful if we could. But the Bible says that God does not work that way, that we have to make an individual decision to follow after him personally in this life um, and that that um, that there are no second chances beyond the grave. All right, let's move on. Verse 30. Here comes the second reason why it is absurd not to believe in the resurrection of the dead, which is really the issue in all this. Verse 30. He says, why are we in danger every hour? Paul is talking about all of the um, the difficulties that he's had to face over the course of his evangelism, over the course of his missionary efforts. He's shared the gospel in all these different places, and he's been in danger uh, of being beaten up by mobs. He's been in th- danger of being thrown in jail by the local authorities. He's lived under constant Threat, skip forward to verse 32. He says, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Probably referring to the crowds at Ephesus, calling them beasts. Referring to the crowds at Ephesus. Or perhaps he was even thrown in a gladiator's ring in Ephesus. I, I don't know. Some scholars have said maybe that was a possibility. But in any case, he, was, he, was, uh, he had a really bad run while he was in Ephesus, um, and he was beaten there. In other words, why would I suffer all of that? Why would I endure all of this physical torture if there was no resurrection of the dead? What a total waste of my time. That's what Paul's saying here. What a total waste that would be. And so if that's the case, if there is no resurrection of the dead, uh, his next point is, verse 32, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. This was a very popular saying back at that time in that part of the world. It came from a poem by I can't can't even pronounce the guy's name. It starts with an M. Maybe it's in the text notes of your Bible. But in any case, it was a popular saying that people used to say, let us eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. They had a very limited view of life, that when you breathe your last, that that was just the end of you. That's kind of what he's talking about there. In other words, drink in pleasure, drink in debauchery, pursue every whim of self-gratification that comes to your mind. If this life is all that we got, then let's get the very most out of it that we possibly can Who cares about morals? Who cares about sin? Just live life to the absolute fullest. Get everything you can. Run hard all the way to the end. Because when you die, that's it. And so Paul's basically saying, why not take that track if there's no resurrection of the dead? If there is no life after the grave. Um, Just eat, drink, and be merry. Paul closes out this section by affirming the opposite of this kind of thinking. He tells the Corinthians, listen, there is an afterlife. Absolutely, You can guarantee there is because we saw the Lord Jesus himself resurrected from the dead. Jesus proved that there is an afterlife, verse 33. Therefore, he says, he concludes, wake up from your drunken stupor. Begin to act right, live right. Do not go on sinning. For some of you have no knowledge of God. That is, you live as though God does not exist. And he says, and this is to your shame. All right, let me sum up what we've learned so far. In verses 29 through 34, Paul gives more reasons why the Corinthians should believe in the resurrection of the dead. First of all, it's because they keep baptizing people on behalf of the dead as though they believe that there's going to be some resurrection of the dead coming up. And so, hey, look, if you're doing all these things, you clearly believe that this is going to happen. Why would you do those things if you didn't think that there was going to be this afterlife? Number two, why should we suffer the way that we do for the cause of Christ if, in fact, the cause of Christ— leads to nothing at all, that this is just a fruitless end, that we're just going to come to the end of our life, and it's going to fade to black, and that's going to be the end of us. He's like, why should we live uh, our lives unto Jesus? Um, We ought to rather be merry, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we're going to die. That is, when we die, we are ended. One thing that I hope is clear is that by Paul's estimation, you cannot have an afterlife, you cannot have life after death, without resurrected bodies. That's his whole driving emphasis here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You cannot have life after death without resurrected bodies. He says that is clearly in view as we approach uh, Jesus's return. All right, well, that is our uh, text for today, our treatment of this topic, which means it's time to stop and ask our most important question, what difference does all this make to my life? Let's um, see if we can answer that. Uh hell poses, sorry, that's pollen, hell poses a problem. The problem for us as Christians is its finality. I don't like thinking about hell any more than anybody else likes thinking about hell, especially when you start thinking about who might be there. I mean, that, that, that can be a lot of sadness in our hearts when we think about people who have gone on before us, friends of ours that have gone on before us, possibly loved ones that have gone on before us and not really sure where they were when they died. None of us know whether they had made a decision to follow Jesus or not. In an attempt to resolve this tension, in an attempt to uh, soothe our hearts, some theologians have invented a, uh, a, a, a manner of thinking about the dead called annihilationism. Annihilationism is the concept that when you go to hell, when somebody goes to hell, that that individual is consumed in the fires of hell, and that they know they cease to exist. So they are consumed by or annihilated by the fires of hell. That's annihilationism. Other groups, like the Mormons, have, as I mentioned earlier, baptized on behalf of the dead, presuming that that has some effect on the status of the deceased, Instead of trying to resolve, as I was kind of looking at this and thinking about this, instead of trying to resolve that problem of hell theologically and and trying to introduce some solutions to the problem of hell and who is there, perhaps we ought to just go with what God gave us. I mean, he presented us a solution to the problem of hell, correct? Perhaps we ought to just go with his solution rather than try and create these obscure, um, in some cases heretical uh, theological positions here's a slide of what is called the bridge illustration some of you probably noticed this before on the left side you can see um, us, Well, or maybe there's a stick figure the, no nope, there's no stick figure, people so we got people over there, that's us on one side of this great chasm um, and think about Mr. Stick Figure over there, okay? You're going to see Mr. Stick Figure here in a second. Think about Mr. Stick Figure over there in the people category. He's standing on one side of this great big expanse. On the opposite is God in heaven. And this is where Mr. Stick Figure wants to go. He wants to get across this great chasm to where God is on the other side. But the problem is that the expanse is so vast that the man cannot cross it. He tries using religious tools. He tries using things like church attendance. He uses philanthropy, like giving to the poor and helping at the food bank. He even tries to be a good person, a good moral person, thinking that, hey, if I'm good enough, like Paul Newman. I don't know if you all remember Paul Newman back in the day. Paul Newman's passed on. But he said, I hope that when I get to heaven, the good things that I've done in this world will outweigh the bad things that I've done in this world. Um, Well, that's one way of kind of looking at and approaching eternity. Um, And so that's kind of Paul Newman over there. And that's others that have thought, you know what? I'm just going to try and be as good a person as I can and hope that that gets me across that great big chasm to where God is. The problem is Romans 3 and verse 23. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if I think that I can be good enough to get to where God is, Romans 3 and verse 23 says you can't. It says we fall short. And so we're stuck on the one side, trying to get to the other side where God is, but unable to do that. We can't get there by religious activity. We can't get there through philanthropy, and we can't get there by good works. Basically, the man has a, the, the stick man has a sin problem that he is unable to overcome. He has a stain on the inside that makes him unfit for heaven. God is a holy God, and God will not allow something or someone who is unclean to come into his presence. So here's God's solution. God the Father sent Jesus, His one and only Son, down to earth. Let's go ahead and take a look at that next slide. Down to earth. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. And then Jesus went to the cross and paid the price for your sins and mine. Basically, Jesus took the hit that was due to us. So when we stand before God one day um, in our own merit, in our own good works, with all of our philanthropy and all of our religious activity or whatever it is we think we're bringing to the table, God's going to say, Sorry. You fall short. And so, with the Lord, and so then we receive in, in our bodies the physical penalty of our sins. God would send us on to eternal judgment. Um, but Jesus, when he went to the cross, he took the hit that you and I were des- deserved, So that when we stand before God, we can do so safe and secure and welcomed into God's presence. This is God's solution to the problem of hell. Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 reminds us, Paul writing here, that this is a free gift that Jesus offers to us. He said, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. We didn't earn this. We sure don't deserve this. But the Lord Jesus, in his great love for us, offered himself as the sacrifice for your sins and mine, giving us passage to heaven. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 again said, as we mentioned a moment ago, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now go back to our illustration again. We've got the bridge there in the middle. Jesus' death on the cross is the bridge between us and God. Again, we can't get there by religious activity, through philanthropy or our good works. God made a way, and the way is the Lord Jesus. If you're here today and you have never put your faith and your trust and Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, friends, the answer is right in front of you. The answer to get from where we are to where God is, eternity with him in heaven, the way to pass over that great chasm and avoid falling into this terrible pit of eternal destruction, the way to get to where God is, is through Jesus Christ. Putting our faith and our trust in him for eternity. So I would invite you to invite him into your heart, Ask him to forgive you of your sins. Something for you to think about. For those of us who have done that, who have put our faith and trust in Jesus already, what difference does this make to us? Number one, it means that instead of inventing theological solutions to the problem of hell, let's go with the solution that God provides us and let's be convinced that that, that's the solution that the world needs. And so then let's go out and share that solution boldly. Let's share that solution kindly, but let's make sure that we do share that solution. Number two, it means, for us who have made that decision, it means that the afterlife is real. And it is, or if the afterlife is real and it is, then we ought to view this life as just some place that we are passing through rather than the final destination for our uh, conscious self. Jesus said it this way. Matthew chapter 6, and verse 19, he said, it's part of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys. Jesus clearly teaches here that when we do things in this life that bring glory to God, that advance his kingdom in this world, that God credits that. Think about this now. God credits that to our eternal bank account. Every one of us has an eternal bank, a savings account, a retirement account, if you would, for our eternal experience. Um, This has nothing to do with salvation. Salvation is through Jesus Christ, through his death and his resurrection, putting our faith and trust for eternity in that. But when it comes to the rewards that we receive when we get to heaven, uh, what we do with the resources that we have, what we do with the time that God has given us, with the breath that we have in our lungs— what we do with that for God and for his glory will determine what kind of rewards we receive in heaven. This is the clear teaching of Jesus himself, straight from the lips of Jesus. Paul said it this way, Second Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Jonathan Edwards was a great Puritan preacher and often spoke of heaven. He put it this way. He said, It becomes us to spend this life only as a journey toward heaven, to which we should subordinate all other concerns of life. Last thought. We have all known plenty of folks, even Christians perhaps, who have treated this life as though it was our final resting place. And in so doing, they wasted their time, they wasted their resources on something that they could not keep. Jesus invites us to have a perspective in this life where we are just passing through. And so to affect the most good that we can for the glory of God along the way. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious God, we thank you for the reminder today from your word that indeed Jesus is the one way to heaven. Lord, we thank you for the reminder today that when we put our faith and trust in you, Jesus, and the work that you accomplished on the cross on our behalf, our place with you in heaven is waiting for us. Lord, we also have been reminded that... What we do with the breath that you've given us, the time that you've given us, the resources that you have blessed us with and put in our charge will determine largely what eternity will be like for us on the other side. Lord, may we be a people who are invigorated and determined to spend every breath, expend every energy like Jonathan Edwards as though we were living for heaven, as though, Lord, we were living as though this world was not our final resting place. Heavenly Father, we just ask in this time of communion that your Holy Spirit would stir in our hearts, put your finger on some places in our life where we can let go of some things, where we can unleash some things into your hands and into your control. Lord, we give you this space. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.